Welcome to Improv Interviews. And today I have a wonderful guest who's really a pioneer in the improv and therapeutic world. We met during the filming of Act Social and at the Act Social by Sean Mulliville's premiere event. And I'm so happy to introduce to you Mary DeMichelle. Hi, Mary. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here too. Now you're doing really, really interesting work, but let's go back a little bit, not too far, but tell me a little bit about your childhood. Were you interested in acting back then or what were your interests and where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in New Jersey outside of the shadow of Giant Stadium, in New York City. Yep. So that area. <laughs> Um, I was always interested in acting um, as a as a little one. I'm told often I had the nickname Sarah Bernhardt from my pediatrician. <laughs> uh, but the unfortunate part was that um, the school district um, by that time had dropped all theater and acting and no longer were teachers required to put on plays every year. Um, I mean, luckily they kept a good music program going, but there was no acting opportunity, elementary, junior high, high school. They did the musicals, but unfortunately I wasn't blessed with that gift of singing. <laughs> um, yeah, I have like a six note range. And, uh, but you know, I got to play in the pit orchestra as a musician, but. It was, oh, what do you play? Oh, I, I played flute and tenor sax back then. Cool. Wish I still did as much, but it, it was phenomenal. Um, and then when I went to college, I was like, okay, I'm in college. I'm going to take an acting class. And I was also an athlete in this state. Uh, we changed practice schedules and had to drop the class. And that was that. And uh, yeah. So it was something I was always interested in, not because I love to be, you know, in the center of the circle or I was never a huge extrovert. Um, I was just, I think attracted to, you know, the, I'd say later on, I'd, I'd say the craft of it, but just the, I guess the empathy of it, you know, going, I, right, I, I get right. that. And I can, you know, I want to do that. Um, and then it was in my mid twenties, I was already teaching high school. Um, I had a degree in history and poli sci and then uh, master's in social science. And I, you know, I kind of woke up in my mid twenties and said, you know, I can't really blame my community or my parents for not letting me act. You know, I'm making money. I can do this myself now. And at that point in the 90s, we still had a lot of conservatories around where you could go and afford to spend two years and, you know, get some training. And I was doing that. And after a few courses, you know, you get your intro to acting and acting one and so on and two. And then they're like, hey, you know what actors need? Actors need to do improv. So my whole class, we did an improv class together and I still remember the first exercise because I had to get into the middle of a circle and it was pretty horrifying. But, <laughs> yeah. But improv has that, you know, that it creates that safety and that supportiveness and that security. And I, I was in with a great bunch of people and I kept at it. And that intrinsic motivational aspect of improv really just makes it easy to keep at something, even if it's not your immediate gift. I wasn't the uninhibited performer who just lets it all out. I was the most blocked up person you could imagine. And um, I stayed with it. And really, really quickly, I felt the benefits of, of improv in my life. And it was manifesting, you know, at work or in just in conversations with people. 
And being a teacher, I wanted to bring it to my classroom, um, to my kids. You know, you want to share when you teach your teacher and you want to share stuff that works. And um, I'd started a performing arts program there, but I was also really big on integrating um, the arts into the academics. Why? Because it made everything better. You know, it made learning easier. Um, It made teaching easier. And the, I got the results I thought I'd get in the classroom with the kids. I mean, they were more energized. They were happier. They were sharing right, right, right. behaviorally. They were getting to class on time. They didn't have that conflict. They were participating more. I mean, it made my job easier. And then, you know, what, what, where things kind of went down a really cool rabbit hole for me was one day we were, it was the nineties, it was the late nineties. It was really big on writing across the curriculum where every academic teacher had to have kids writing all the time. And my class did the same. And I had lots of high school kids that didn't write. They hated writing. And I'd run around from desk to desk trying to help them. And one day I just found that I wasn't doing that anymore. And they were just all writing. And when I kind of looked at them, the one, one girl just looked up and said, yes, and. I was like, oh my goodness, they have transferred it to their writing. Oh, wow. You know, and you know, there's research out there that says what people learn in the performing arts will transfer to their lives. Not everyone, but they transferred it. And now they were writing without me prompting externally. They were internally prompting themselves. So I was like, well, wow, can I make this deliberate so I can get these results every time? So I put together, you know, a, a short little a sequence of improv games, story games, yes and games, and researched it. And I was really lucky to have two opportunities, one over an inner city six-week summer program for at-risk students. And, and can one, I ask, where, yeah. where were you geographically at this time? Jersey City. Oh, yeah. I worked in Jersey City. That yeah. is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Jersey City, the first one. And uh, the next one, another uh, locality in uh, Hudson County, Sea Caucus. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, we did a six-week summer program and then six days in the classroom. And what was remarkable were the results were pretty much the same. So students who had IEPs, individual educational plans, mm-hmm. um, they, they went up 300%, meaning their <gasps> writing samples were 300% longer with coherent, fluent, full, complete thoughts. So kids who wouldn't put a thought on paper, you know, or very little 300% increase in students without IEPs, it was a 50% increase. And, you know, this opens the door for the teacher and the student, because now they can learn mechanics, structure, style. Um, And when you look at it, which was cool, improv seemed to do two things. One, it addressed social emotional issues. Mm -hmm. It got rid of, oh God, I hate writing. I can't write. I hate school. I hate the classroom. Or it, it, it closed the gap on something that probably occurred during the, um, it closed the gap on a literacy deficit that probably occurred between, you know, when you get your literacy skills between two and seven years old, and maybe they missed school, maybe there was something in their life and it was disruptive. But we know those people, those students where they talk a lot and they're really intelligent 
but they can't put it on paper, but doing improv, they could put it on paper. And um, that, that, that's, those two studies were published in 2015 in the journal of the International Journal of Arts and Education. So that got me into so so you were writing and re- you were researching as well mm-hmm. and yes. uh how were you researching did you have a phd at that point or uh i'd love an honorary one <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm giving it to you now i bestow a phd no that that's terrific did you have any psychologists working with you or you just published on your own I pretty much published on my own. There were some people along the way that, you know, I talked to and they kind of helped, but man, there was a lot of just work. And I was really fortunate. Um, I was in the Hudson County schools of technology district. And during the nineties, there was a huge push. And this is probably for teachers all over New Jersey and maybe the country at that time for teachers to start um, researching, studying what worked in their classroom. And they called it action research. And you would ask a question and you'd research it and you'd find out what was working and what wasn't in your classroom. So I kind of came out of that. And then what I discovered with complete frustration is once you did that, there was no way to share it. Um, I think Connecticut actually had a publishing place for teachers to share, but it was just kind of frustrating. So I kind of went the route of how do I get this published in a journal? And that's a huge self-education. Oh, well, and then do you have links to that article still? Yes. That, oh, wonderful. We'll have that in the uh, write-up that accompanies our talk today. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you were doing this in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, late in the mid-90s, late 90s into the 2000s. Yeah. Wow. And can I ask just as a question, what kind of instruments you were using for your research? Like testing results, or were they anecdotal or... No. So what, what, what we did was um, we did. Uh, okay. So the first one, we did a pre and post writing sample. Okay. So it was a very generic open topic um, and the students. So we did a pre and post, and then we counted up both two things, the number of words and the number of complete thoughts. Right. And which right. Is, what was neat is like a lot of kids, when they start to realize they have to write more, they just keep adding words, you know, like 16 adjectives. But we saw the increase in complete thoughts. And how often were they doing the improv classes? They were doing them during the summer program. Um, this, the experimental group um, went to a writing class to help them catch up with writing. And the other group just played improv games. Um, they did that probably three, four days a week. And in the classroom study, they did... Um, basically a writing sample at the beginning of the year, a writing sample right before they start at five days of improv and then a post sample. So you could see over four months, there was really no improvement. And then after five days, it just shot right up. Wow. Wow. That is beautiful. That must've been so inspiring to you. You know, it was exciting because it was like, wow, you know, you're an improviser. You want to share this. And I'm like, I have quantitative research. All those people that just think it's fluffy playtime will see that this is replicable and impactful and quantifiable. And I still got the same dismissive smiles from people. And it was finally someone just looked at me and said, 
it sounds amazing. It sounds great. It's really impressive. It's just not for me. And at that point, even after all that work, I realized, you know, people just have no idea what this is. They don't get it. And um, I realized that I really had to work at articulating and simplifying the process of improv and what it is, and also how to instruct others and do it so, so they could bring it more quickly to their lives, to their classroom, where this started out. That is so exciting. So this is in the 90s. I don't even know. Oh, apply we're, if it, we're well into the 2000s now. So oh, okay, okay. Kind of kept going. Okay. So by so then, yeah. the, the Applied Improv Network had started up as well because you were doing Applied Improv. I had no idea they existed until 2019. Right? I had no idea. They, um, I've been doing this, right. A lot of this on these studies started in the early 2000s, right after you know the turn of the century. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I didn't know they existed because what happened was I had left the New York City area probably in about 2005, 2006. And I started living in various other places around the country and just was doing what I was doing. That is so cool. Now, when you were still in the New York area, were you taking classes anywhere or performing or what was going on back in the 90s and early 2000s? Well, um, I started taking the improv classes. There was a conservatory in Clifton Action Theater. And then, wow. Wow. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then my teacher, who became our director because we started an improv troupe, he started his own uh, school, the New Jersey School of Dramatic Arts, um, with Beth Bauer, who was my acting teacher and just the most phenomenal um, teacher. She's been nominated twice for Teacher of the Year with the Tonys and great, great, really great people. So I got my foundation um, through him. His foundation was through the Groundlings when they came to New York City in the early 80s and started. Oh, yeah. And uh, we... Uh, we started an improv troupe, probably it was 90, no, 90, geez, when was, I don't know, late nineties. And I performed with them for seven years and it was great because there were still Barnes and Nobles around and we did Barnes and Nobles once a month plus other gigs, but that totally kept the G rated and just your chops going in front of an audience. And, uh, I'd done that the whole time. Well, then they're still in existence. We I went back for their 20th anniversary a couple of years ago. They're, they're great. Absolutely amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. Nutty by nature. There you go. Plug. What's it called? <laughs> Nutty by nature. Nutty by nature. I love yeah. it. So um, coming a bit forward, I'm not sure, but in, in, in the piece that Sean did about you, yeah. where you do, uh, let's go up to where you got involved in trauma uh, work. And when did that start? Well, um, I taught in the classroom and then uh, I taught in the classroom about 10 years straight and then about 17 years altogether when I started kind of moving. But I got into training and consulting and, and I started my own back in 02. I started my own sort of arts integration um, company. I called it Academic Play, bringing improv and theater into the classroom and stuff. So um, through that, um, I started to discover this whole other world. And I, I did work with different populations, uh, kids who were in different types of treatment centers. Some were sentenced by court. Sometimes it was foster care facilities. Um, 
you know, I continued with schools. So then when I came to Missouri, I ended up for the last five years working a lot with a treatment center that specializes in uh, complex developmental trauma and brought improv there. And there we had the opportunity to actually do research, neurobiological research. So that was just crazy exciting. And what did that research consist of? Were you actually using you know, MRIs or things like that? Tell me about that. <laughs> well, we didn't have an MRI machine, but we did have a QEEG technology to use. So what we did was we had, uh, we were able to do QEEG brain scans on 32 teenagers. Um, it was pretty much split between boys and girls. And they would do a pre-brain scan. They would play improv for about 15, 20 minutes. And then we do a post-brain scan. And um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I lost my thought there. My, my brain wanted to go in three different directions. So Well, so you were doing brain scans on kids at, before they improvised and then mm -hmm. after they improvised. And what did this show? Okay. So... What it showed, we found three main findings. Well, it increased the functional connectivity of the brain, meaning that it gets the brain online. It gets the brain in a better place to function emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally, which means it puts a person in a better position to engage in life, learning, uh, relationships, therapy. It just gets the brain online. Um, See, so, well, you know, I mean, you're licensed. Um, when someone has experienced trauma, oftentimes they're kind of living in that fear-based brain. They're in that hyper arousal. They're seeing threat. And this, and talking, trying to help someone in that state through talk, it doesn't work. It's just not as effective. They can't right. hear you. They can't understand you. They're more apt to just lash out and to just push you away, either through aggression or controlling the conversation or hide themselves. So it's either you go away or I'm going to go away, but we're not doing this. Right, right, right. Yeah. So but with improv so quickly within minutes, it just put their brain online. And now you had someone at their best, you know, where they can, you know, it, I'll talk about more specific some of the findings, but seriously, you have that that neural signature of flow that Charles Lim, you know, so thankfully put out there um, that they're expressing themselves their best, they're feeling their best, and that's the person you get to work with. And uh, a, a funny aside is, you know, these kids are in treatment. I mean, their parents they love the parents love them. They love them enough to put them in treatment. They need help. Um, the families need help. Um, they struggle with making healthy relationships and healthy connections. And, um, and when I meet the family, sometimes I'm like, Hey, thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure working with your child. And they look at me like, who am I talking about? <laughs> and, and the thing is, since I do improv with them, I see these kids at their absolute best, right, you know, right, they're right. open, they're honest, they're on. It's really great. Um, because they struggle with that. They struggle greatly with that. Um, and 
the thing with the complex developmental trauma, it's not a recognized diagnosis mm-hmm. in the DSM V DSM five. Yeah. Five. Got it. Um, so when you look at their records, um, these, they, they present with, you know, they're diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, anxiety, depression, self-harm, relationship problems. Um, but r- what it really comes down to is that they experienced chronic trauma in their early childhood. And it's sort of, you know, it inhibited the development of the right hemisphere right. of the brain. Right. And we saw, we saw the activation there. So I can go into that right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go into that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's go into what we really, really kind of break it down. Cool, cool, cool. Um, So the first thing we saw, we saw three, there's, you know, you have all that data and there's so many little rabbit holes you can kind of go down to. But what we saw, three major findings that present it really clearly um, with the population that we looked at. Um, and the first one was coherence. And coherence means that the brain function became more integrated and effective. So the different parts of the brain connect it better. Um, when you have, when you have hypercoherence, when there's a lot of connectivity going on in the brain and it's just sort of like too much, you end up with a rigidity and a stubbornness. Um, you know, you have a, a kid who's like, I'm not changing, I'm not growing, I'm not moving, you know, and they can't, there's too much connectivity going on. They're like paralyzed, you know, in, in themselves. And then when there's a hypocoherence in the brain or a low connectivity, the sections just aren't connecting well enough. And you have a lack of task completion. So for instance, you might say to someone, Hey, take out the garbage. And they're like, yeah, sure. I got it. And you come back an hour later and the garbage is still there and they could have just blown you off or they could have actually neurologically not had enough connectivity in their brain to complete the task. Right. Right. So what we saw with improv was it actually, it decreased the hyperconnectivity enough which allowed for the sections of the brain to be more efficient in talking to each other, which then helped problem solving um, ability to kind of come back. And that was all really good. So we have the connection, the connection there. And what was even cool too, was we saw a lot of connectivity in the right hemisphere. And as I said, you know, with this traumatized population where they suffer from the effects of trauma, a lot of times that manifests in a self-deprecating behavior. You know, you know, know, they hate me. Everyone hates me. I'm not going to do it. I suck that, you know, whatever unhealthy relationships, withdrawal, isolation, depression. Um, But with the activation now in the right hemisphere, they move out of that. And they start to be, be able to find themselves and express themselves better. They're not so overwhelmed with too much connectivity. So you have that problem solving turned on. You have that beginning of a connection with themselves. Cool. I, I don't want to interrupt too much, but I love the fact that so many improv games, 
almost all improv games are about problem solving. Do you have some favorites that you use with your teens? Oh, absolutely. Um, oh my goodness. So where do I start? That's always my problem. Um, I love the foundational games. I spend a lot of time on yes and. So they really can hear it externally and then move it internally. So it's present in every interaction. Um, collaborative yes and games are absolutely key. So we're not looking at internal wittiness of the individual. We're looking at can they yes and each other. Um, so one I do like is um, hot seat where they're interviewed by two people at the same time. But one that's really, really amazing. I'm going down my own little path here. Um, I think it was uh, Carrie Loban's book. Uh, she had a debate game in there. And I'm not sure if she called it flip or flop, but I call it flip or flop. And I think it was in there um, where you have a person in the middle and they're in the middle of a debate and they have to keep taking the same side. Uh, cool. Okay. I don't know that one. No. Okay. I think it's in there. I'm not sure. Um, or I did it. I don't know. You know, you know how it goes. You just kind of keep right. creating in the moment. Yeah. So um, you, so you're in the middle of a debate, a harmless debate. And um, uh, the person in the middle has to agree with each side of the debate. And I did this game for like four months. I couldn't get it to work. I'm like, why is this not working? And then I finally said, one of the kids was like, can I just take the opposite side? And I said, yeah, sure. And with that four kids went to jump up and say, I can do that. I can fight with anyone. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just yes and. It's the fact that these kids are so oppositional that this is one of the hardest games because they're literally sitting in the middle of a conflict and they want to fight in it and they're not allowed. They have to still continue to practice unconditional acceptance. You know, so that's that's one of my favorite. And uh, there's so many favorites, but those two um, are definitely super it's effective. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So have we, I know we were going kind of down a list of some of the other benefits. I yeah, yeah. interrupted you from that. Oh. Is, yeah. All right. So go ahead. No, go ahead and check your notes again. I forgot where we left off. <laughs> so there's this other thing. This is pretty wild. It's called phase lag and it's how fast your brain areas communicate. And you would think the faster they communicate, the smarter you can be, right? You know, like the brain on espresso, but it's really not the case. When you have too much face, phase lag, it's like if you and me were talking at the same time, all right? We would just talk over each other. Right. So our brain areas can do the same thing to each other. And when that happens, you can't understand what's going on around you. You're just overwhelmed. And you, you can't understand what someone else is saying to you or meaning by what they say. And that's where you get a lot of that misinterpretation of we you know, like, you know, you want to fight, you know, <laughs> they just don't get it um, because they can't hear it. They can't take in what's going on around them. Now, on the flip side, when phase lag is too slow, it's like I say something. And there's such a pause that your mind just went on to do your neurosystem just went on to something else in between. So that's not effective either. So what we found was the phase lag actually, when this population, it's important, it decreased it. So it made communication more effective. And they were able to um, um, start to understand what was going on around them to start to um, see when it's too fast, 
it's difficult for them to be in the moment and to participate, right? Because they don't, don't understand. But what we saw too on this was the activation of the right hemisphere again, the back right. And with that, it's the nonverbal part of the brain. So now they're paying attention. I, I love this. It's because now we know this is improvisers, that this is what's happening. Yeah, yeah. But now we know the brain's actually doing it and we can point to that. So the back right region slows down. It's related to nonverbal communication. So now I'm paying attention to the other player. I'm paying attention to the people around me. I'm focused on what they're doing. I'm not stuck in my head and my own negative ruminations and negative thoughts. I'm present, I'm aware, and now I'm focusing on the other person. And that's what that decrease in phase lag allows us to do. And then finally, um, this is, and, and let me just talk, let me just go back a sec, you know, because, you know, I go sometimes it's yes. And, you know, if we look at it, it's a yes. And that's the access point because we see in the first part that the yes and when we talked about coherence, it creates the safety and security to shift and activate the brain. All right. Activate all those other sections of the brain, not just the fear-based brain, but the prefrontal cortex, right? That's the yes. And it's creating that safety and security. We always talk about it doing. And then the phase lag, it's the, and I love the, and so often people get so stuck, not in the improv world, but in the therapy world a lot, they get stuck in the yes, you know, because it's such a positive affirming right, right. feeling when someone yeses you. But most, most of us know that people can yes you and never mean a thing by it. Right. But and is that magical power because now you have to be present. You have to slow down because it's instigating just enough uncertainty of what's about to come next. You know? We focused on like, oh, improv is so scary. It's going to lock you up. No, improv is so safe because of the yes and. It just instigates just enough uncertainty, you know, as uh, Lim said, to basically flip us in the flow or just enough uncertainty to slow our brain down. So we focus on each other. Beautiful. I oh, love this. I love this. It's so exciting. I know people can't see you right now, but like there's this glow and this big <laughs> smile. And I'm so excited about this work as well, because in therapy land, most work is trauma work. Right. So uh, and what else do you want to tell me? Well, the last thing was we saw the activation of the sensory motor system and especially, you know, the mirror neurons. And, um, you know, and again, it's helping, you know, people traumatize the right hemisphere, not, you know, inhibit it, but now they're better understanding and engaging in social interaction, you know, and again, we see yes, and probably providing that opportunity to practice consistent and reciprocal attunement, prompting that neuro, the mirror neuron, neuro system, allowing them the easier experience and understanding and making meaning out of verbal and nonverbal communication. And, um, you know, with the mirror neurons, I mean, I, I love mirror neurons. I, I went to the movies with my, my, with my two kids. Okay. And we're watching the good dinosaur or whatever it was called. And I, you know, there's my three-year-old daughter in tears at the end and I'm in tears and, you know, I'm like, oh, she has my mirror <laughs> neuron system, poor child, <laughs> you know, but it helps us learn by watching and, and, and trauma you know, I mean, the mirror neuron system, it helps us learn. It helps us mirror what someone else is doing. And in trauma, it's not useful. 
to mirror or connect with other people's emotions if they can be potentially dangerous or judgmental mm -hmm. or abusive mm -hmm. or non-existent. So that system shuts off. And with the loss of that mirror neurosis, you know, that sensory motor system, the mirror neurons, you lose that capacity to express empathy. But now we see improv, it turns it back on the whole sensory motor system. You're activating it. You know, there, you're, you know, we've moved to being aware of ourselves to expressing ourselves. And now, you know, there's other research in here with the brain about moving to our actual motor movements and our mirror neurons. And um, we can see like, yeah, you know, now we're in the position to connect, to express empathy, to form healthy relationships, to find that connection and joy. Yeah. And we can see it in the brain, you know, and you know, you've been doing this for years with people. And, um, and that's the thing. It's like when people do it and they can experience it viscerally, mm -hmm. it's great. But for everyone else, who's like still on the outside of it, not understanding what, you know, improv is, you know, I just hope like research like this and future research and existing research gets the, those that this speaks to, you know, interested, curious. Yes, yes, yes. You know, yes. Let, let it be a gateway. Absolutely. Let it be a gateway. Absolutely. I just love your energy and enthusiasm. So uh, what have you been doing lately? Where are you working now? Um, well, I've been working um, with this same treatment center. Also, I've been traveling around um, working with other treatment centers with different types of populations. Cool. Um, any I, any recovery movements like addictions or anything like that? Um, specifically, no, I haven't done that yet. Interesting in the research, there were a few case studies we could probably pull out, but not enough to, you know, form. We didn't have enough that enough um, students that had addiction in their profile to make it, um, you know, a total claim, but a few case studies where there was definitely improvement because what improv was doing, it was basically better balancing their neurosystem. You know, whether they had, you know, if, if certain things were in deficit or too high, wherever they were, it balanced the neurosystem. So we did see some good stuff, but we haven't published that. Um, I haven't worked specifically, but in these treatment populations, especially, you know, a lot of them have addiction, but it's with, a, you know, a myriad of other diagnoses. Comor comorbidity. Comorbidity. Thank yes. you. Comorbidity. But um, for most of my career, I've worked a lot with addictions uh -huh. and um, alcohol, substance abuse and codependence. And the uh, and I like the 12 step model that a lot of groups use and the 12 steps have so many parallels with the principles of improv like the yes and, and the acceptance and I've done a few workshops on this but it's really interesting and I think so much more could be done in the recovery field with yeah. this as well now getting back to your population you use the em word empathy I don't know 25 times did I um, no 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 I'm just joking no 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 no, no I'm sorry uh, <laughs> um but uh are kids on the spectrum also in your population because uh it's i know i've worked with asd kids and how much value they get from improv so can you speak on that at all oh absolutely um there have been um students in the spectrum in this population and it absolutely works um there is a i mean i wish i could give credit to her she published an article years ago and 
she coined it. I remember the first time in the late nineties and early two thousands, when we went to full integration and in high school, children with autism were starting to show up in the classrooms and they were fully integrated. And I remember thinking, uh Oh, you know, all this change, can they do it? And they could. And this one woman coined it. She just said, it's the structure of yes. And they see the structure and it gives them guidance and they go with it. And in this population this absolutely worked. And what's really great is how much it helps them as well as every, every teenager with social cueing. And one of my favorite games, it was, um, Oh, it's the, um, it's the, um, the mirror. You do the mirroring, but you tell a story simultaneously with two people. Yeah. And, um, I remember the one student, he was on the spectrum and he goes, I hate this game. I go, I know it was hard for him to actually cue that much, look at someone in the face that long, follow their gestures as well. And um, it took about four weeks and he was actually doing it with three and four students at a time. Wow. So what's amazing is when you have, you know, improv that parallels treatment needs in a playful way. Oh my, it's play. It's the power of play where you, yes, you're going yes. to see this growth so rapidly. It's, you know, it's people don't believe it until they see it. More people need to be seeing it too. They so, do. um, so you're working in real time. Yes. Now, did you work virtually at all over mm, the past year and a half? Not really. Um, actually I worked in person a lot because these populations are in person and they're not going anywhere. And, you know, so, you know, it's fortunate because I, you know, we all would love to work in person, you know, right, and, right, um, right. I was able to, and uh, it was great because, you know, you need that human connection. So, and oh, everything really was do. fine where we were, you know, it was all good. Good, 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 good. With now, lots you, of precautions in place, you know. Oh, that is so fantastic. Now, you did you have anything else I haven't asked you about yet? Because this is fascinating. And I know my listeners are going to get so much out of this, Mary. Great. I, I, I hope so. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I just... Uh, I'm just really passionate about, you know, using this as a, as a gateway to expose more people, just, you know, short form comedy improv and yes. And, um, and, uh, I do some, do stuff in the community. We do improv oh. jams. Oh, yeah. tell me, tell me about, uh, the pirate ship. <laughs> the pirate ship. Well, that's actually a scripted, um, interactional and improvisational show. I have the absolute privilege to do here. We have a 65 foot pirate ship and a stage and a secondary stay, uh, set in the woods. And, uh, oh, we're wow. able to do, yeah, it's wild and it's fun. And know? then you have, you have jams at a coffee shop. I do. I, um, I really, you know, short form, comedy improv, you know, with, with yes. And has just been so useful uh, to me from performing it to integrate it in classrooms, to bringing it into treatment, but bringing it to families in the community where, um, you know, people can just drop in. Some people have theater experience and have never done improv. Most people don't have improv experience, but it's a way for them to understand 
what it really is. Um, you know, that it's, you know, it's human nature to put things in a box and, you know, whose line did yes. the most phenomenal job of yes. bringing it to millions of people worldwide. And then I remember the moment when I really understood that no one had any idea what they were doing. And I was, you know, someone had run up and said, Oh, Mary, I get it. I get it. They're yes. Anding. And I was like, Oh my God, no one really got that. Did they? Which would explain why as humans, we put people in boxes and we put labels on it because right, we right, feel better. Right, right. So improv became, it's like stand up. No, it's like acting. No, it's like <laughs> sketch. No, no, <laughs> it's really unique. Right. You know? And, uh, I just try and break it down for people. It's about listening and connecting and showing your value to the other person. And how could that not be for you? Exactly. And how therapeutic that is. Well, Mary DeMichelle, I'm going to have to speak to you some more and definitely have to get into your work some more. And as I said, we're going to have links to your papers and mm -hmm. the uh, write-up I'm going to be doing. And I just admire the work that you're doing so much because you are a pioneer in using improv and trauma-based issues with different populations and you're changing so many lives. Hey, thank you so much. And thanks for this opportunity to talk to you and anyone who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lot more people listen than I think sometimes. So that's good. Well, listen, until we meet again, I want to say uh, au revoir uh, to Mary de Michelle. That's kind of a French name, isn't it, Mary de Michelle? It is. So somewhere along the lines, but that's not, great. Yeah, it's <laughs> great. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day, and um, I hope to see you soon because this was so much fun. It was. It was, and. I guess we could definitely could do it virtually. Yay! Yay! <laughs> okay, thanks again, Mary. Uh, thank you so much, Marga.